Well, do uh, please turn in your Bibles to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, page 1160, as we continue looking through um, this, uh, these couple of chapters, chapter 4 and uh, the first part of chapter 5, over these uh, couple of weeks. 2 Corinthians 4, and we're looking uh, today at verses 7 to 18. Well, in fact, we're not going to get through to 18. We're only going to get through as far as 15, but I'll pick up again from verse 16 uh, next week. Having studied it this week, it's probably a good place to break anyway. So uh, verse 16 is a good place to pick up next week. So it's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and in fact it's verse 17 to 15. Uh, Have you noticed the, uh, the huge personality cult in Britain today? In many ways, it's nothing like the cult of personality of post-revolution Russia that saw the idolatry and worship of Stalin. That's not the the personality cult I'm thinking about. Today's personality cult sees the majority of Britons enthralled by the superstars of our day. The stars of pop and sport and Hollywood. Uh, Pick up... um, copies of magazines like Hello and OK. I can't believe I've just told you to do that, but if you do pick up copies of uh, uh, magazines like Hello and OK, you'll see that personality is huge commercially. Personalities can transform a business. Advertising executives know that, don't they? So businesses pay big money to get the famous and desirable personalities of our day to be the face of their product or the name who endorses the merchandise. A, a news story from this week um, uh, pointed this out to me. Did you, did you see it? It was, uh, it was actually on the, uh, the, the BBC One uh, news, but I, I picked it up in the Metro, um, <laughs> just to show you what I read all day. Uh, here it was. It's all about um, uh, who is the richest football club in Britain at the moment, and it reads this. David Beckham's commercial value has helped Real Madrid overtake Manchester United for the first time as the wealthiest club in the world. Now it's very interesting that you see Real Madrid Football Club is more wealthy not because they're playing better football. They're not these days, they're actually way down the league. They are more wealthy because they have Becks in their team. And people love to buy David Beckham merchandise. The personality cult is alive and kicking in Britain, as it was in first century Corinth too. You see, as we turn to 2 Corinthians, we are turning into a society that loved impressive, powerful, dynamic and strong people. They were not impressed at all by weakness. And that personality cult had infiltrated the the church too. The church was now influenced by that same cult of personality. And so when a group of leaders emerged who were impressive, powerful people, the Christians in Corinth loved them, hung on their every word, wanted them to be their leader. And desperately they were more impressed by the personality than by the gospel that these people brought which is why Paul writes as he does, really right the way through the letter, but not least of all in chapter 4. But just to see this, will you turn over with me to chapter 11 for a moment, just to give us the background, and then we'll come back to chapter 4 and stay there for the rest of this morning. Well, not for the rest of the morning, you understand. Well, no, it will be for the rest of the morning. It's only quarter to 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 4. You see what Paul says here, thinking about these impressive 
people who'd walked into Corinth. If someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. Why? Well, because these people are impressive people and they love them. See what he says in verse 5? But I do not think that I am in the least inferior to these super apostles. That's the name that Paul gave these impressive, so-called impressive leaders. He is, of course, being quite ironic. I don't think that I'm in the least inferior to those super apostles. I may not be a trained speaker, of course they were, but I do have knowledge. Now do you see what's going on there? It seems these people were great orators, trained speakers, impressive people who uh, had persuaded the Corinthians to follow their brand of Christianity. And what is so desperate as we look at these verses is that it was another gospel. They were preaching another, another Jesus. It wasn't that they weren't preaching Jesus, but just that it was another Jesus. And part of the false leader's strategy was to undermine the Apostle Paul. Indeed, in chapter 12, we won't look at it now, Paul talks about his weaknesses. Why? Because these false teachers had said, look at Paul, he is a pathetic specimen of humanity. He is weak and unimpressive and sickly. But Paul is going to say in our section, and indeed as he says in chapter 12, no, actually weakness is the very tool that God uses to bring his gospel to people. Turn back with me then to chapter 4. Chapter 4 debunks the personality culture. And it shows us that the Lord chooses to use weak and ordinary people like you and me to bear the gospel. Look at verse 7. It is one of those verses that is worth underlining if you like underlining verses in your Bible. I was going to say get a pen out and underline it, but you better not because probably most of you are looking at church Bibles. Wait until you get home. Chapter 4, verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. It is a packed verse. We have this treasure, says Paul in verse 7. This gospel is a wonderful treasure. Paul described it in verse 6, the verse before, as the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Christian, what a treasure you have in the gospel You know God. Well, Rosemary helped us to think that through as she was praying for us. We can come into the very presence of God. You can see the glory of God in the face of Christ. What a treasure. Such a treasure that Jesus himself said in the parable of the pearl of great price, the first of the readings that we had, that we should make sure we have this gospel whatever the cost. Quite simply, the gospel is the most precious thing in the universe. And that makes the next thing that Paul says in verse 7 such a surprise. We have this treasure, the most precious thing in the universe, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Now last summer, once we knew that we'd be leaving London to come to Sheffield, we spent most of our days off making the most of all the sights that we hadn't yet seen in London. You know how it is, when you live somewhere, you don't actually uh, appreciate where, where you are. You don't tend to see or, or bother to go and see all that you've, uh, that you've got on your doorstep. We, we've been enjoying going out to the hills. That's now a new thing for us. You've probably got used to it. 
We were the same in London, with all the sights to see. Well, we started to see all the sights that we hadn't seen, knowing that we were going to be a long way from it. And so one day we spent at the Tower of London to see the Crown Jewels. Uh, It's an impressive building, of course, you you will have seen it yourself. And the Crown Jewels are magnificent. The royal maces, the swords, the staff, the sovereign's orb, the coronation ring, and of course the imperial state crown, containing over 3,000 diamonds and pearls. And on top of that there are sapphires, emeralds, rubies, including the uh, Edward the Confessor sapphire, the ancient ballast ruby and the Stuart sapphire. The crown jewels, of course, are so precious they are kept under lock and key, heavily guarded behind reinforced bulletproof glass in a tower with huge gates. Seems sensible to keep precious things in a secure environment. So what a surprise verse 7 is. We have this treasure in jars of clay. The most precious treasure in the universe, the gospel of Jesus, is kept in jars of clay. That's how Paul describes you and me, jars of clay, frail, weak, fragile vessels, jars of clay, the sort of thing found on archaeological digs, but usually found in pieces, bits of broken pottery. Jars of clay were the ordinary everyday pots of the time, very fragile and easily broken, worth about as much as a flimsy plastic cup and easily broken. And you don't even mind that I've broken it, do you? Because you know it doesn't cost much. That is the truth about you and I, actually, says Paul. We are like plastic cups, fragile and frail. Of course, when we were young and fit, we may well have felt indestructible. But of course, we know we're not. Well, most of us probably have come to that conclusion. Again, uh, as I was reading the Metro, I went on a trip to London, you see, this week and and picked this up while uh, while I was going. As I was reading this, a story that I read illustrated just that point. It speaks of the death of a young man uh, just uh, last year. And uh, the inquest was happening, which is why it made the news. Student died after drink binge. A promising young rugby player died after collapsing at the end of a pub crawl. Mr Ward, Tom Ward is his name, Mr Ward fell after he returned home at 11pm on October the 5th last year and became unable to breathe. He was found by housemates and pronounced dead by paramedics, it says here. A fit 19-year-old sportsman, no doubt when Tom Ward started out that evening he felt indestructible, because teenagers do, don't they? But by the end of that tragic day, there was was no doubt that he wasn't indestructible. See, that's the truth about you and me. We are flimsy, like plastic cups. And yet the Lord keeps the treasure of the gospel in us, in fragile containers. Well, as you read verse 7, aren't you tempted to say, how irresponsible of the sovereign Lord... When the sovereign of this land has her most precious jewels kept so securely, how careless of the sovereign Lord to keep the most precious thing in the universe in such flimsy pots. Or is it careless? Look again carefully at verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show, or in order that, this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Now, the Lord is not negligent with the gospel. 
Uh, quite the opposite. This is a deliberate plan to keep such a precious treasure in such a fragile container. Because then it shows how powerful the gospel really is. That's the point of verse 7. The gospel is the greatest power in the universe. Do you see it there? This all-surpassing power. It is the most powerful thing in the universe because the gospel changes lives. Lives like um, Stephen Lungu. Have you ever read this book? It's called Out of the Black Shadows. Stephen Lungu was a terrorist in Zimbabwe years ago. The leader of a gang called the Black Shadows, a terrorist gang. And you know, he was converted at the very Christian meeting that he'd gone to blow up with explosives. It is an amazing story, a a wonderful read, well worth getting hold of this book. Now Stephen Lungu is a Christian evangelist and he has won thousands to the Lord. The Lord does that. The all-surpassing power of the Lord. No one else can do that. That is power. More run-of-the-mill, but no less spectacular, I think, of a young man, only out for himself and thoroughly materialistic, a young man who would happily walk all over others to get promotion, determined to make something of himself, to have a life of luxury, and then one day he heard the gospel. And now? Well, now he puts others first, or at least he tries to. Now now he actually gives money away, although he knows there's still more he could give. The Lord does that. And when we see that change in people's lives, well, verse 7 says, it happens so that there will be no doubt that it is the Lord who's done it. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And verse 15 tells us that that should cause us to thanksgiving and to give glory to God. The glory of God. That's why the Lord entrusts this precious gospel to us, jars of clay. Now, do you see how different this is to the personality cult? Do you see why Paul writes this? The Lord uses weak and insignificant and fragile people to carry the gospel to others so that when others become Christians, people like Stephen Lungu and the young man I was just telling you about, when the Lord makes people Christians, there is no doubt that it is the Lord and not the personality. But just like the Christians in Corinth, we are easily seduced into thinking that it is the personality that will change lives. Have you noticed how it is seeping its way into the church in Britain? So Christians are attracted to follow magnetic, alluring, captivating church leaders. We love the witty and powerful person who has no weakness, the person who's got it all together... When it comes to evangelism, we think that if we get the the personality in, then people will be converted. That most of all, I see it in sports evangelism. We believe that it is the sports star who will convert people. We would never say it like that, but that's actually what we believe. So we invite a sports star to speak at an event without asking any of the important questions. Is the sports star a gifted communicator to the gospel? We don't ask that, we just want them to come. Will they be faithful to the gospel in their presentation? Doesn't matter, they're a sports star. Is the sports star authentically living the gospel? 
We simply don't ask those questions. We believe that if only we can get the superstar to speak at our event, then people will become Christians and they'll want to know more. Don't we think that way? It's just the personality cult. But you see, verse 7 is quite the opposite. The Lord deliberately entrusts the gospel to weak and frail human beings, people who are not stars of anything. To people who are nothing very spectacular. Why? To show that the power is his and not ours. That's his plan. Divine power through human weakness. That's the big theme of the letter, actually. And what does that human weakness look like? What does it mean to be, to be a jar of clay? Well, for the bearer of the gospel, it means struggling with life every day. Isn't that a surprise? Struggling with life every day. Look at Paul's experiences in verses 8 and 9. There are four Ps. Well, there are three, but I made up the fourth. But you'll see how it works. Four Ps. Uh, And they are four Ps that are part of authentic Christian ministry. The first one, verse 8, Paul was pressed or hard-pressed. Squeezed, you see it there, hard-pressed in verse 8. Squeezed into all kinds of tight corners. That's how Christian ministry is, that's how Christian service is. That's how I find it, pressurised by countless stresses outside my control. For Paul, it meant dealing with an errant church in Corinth. That was a huge pressure for him. It caused him all sorts of sleepless nights, but it wasn't his fault that the church had gone astray. He'd left a good church set up. Now he felt hard-pressed. Pressed, the second P, verse 8, perplexed. Bewildered, utterly at a loss. Can you see Paul at his desk with his hands, his head in his hands, At his wit's end, not knowing where to turn next. Well, again, let me tell you, that is my experience of Christian ministry. I don't know where to turn next most of the time. That's a great encouragement for you to know that I'm your new vicar, isn't it? There are so many issues that are far too big for me to cope with. Coming across my desk, if not daily, then, then quite regularly, I don't know where to turn, which one to tackle next. And even when I do turn to an issue, I don't have a clue how to deal with it anyway. You're getting more encouraged by the moment, aren't you? (laughs) Do you feel that same thing when you look at the mess of the world? Of course you do. Can you deal with it? No. Maybe you feel that when you look at uh, the amount of work you have to do. Maybe you just think your own life is in a mess. How can I possibly deal with it? Perplexed. The The third P is in verse 9. Persecuted. Hunted like a wild animal. People hounded Paul out of town. And as you and I stand up for Jesus, we can expect to be, well, unpopular at best. With the way laws are going in this land, well, we might well expect to be persecuted as Paul was. Now, persecution is the normal Christian life. I'm not going to go looking for it, but if I'm to be faithful to the Lord, I won't be able to avoid it. Pressed, hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, and the fourth one is punched. Well, well, Paul says in verse 9, struck down. But literally, it is punched, it is thrown, prostrate by a heavy blow. And of course, Paul knew that, he was physically beaten. He says it in chapter 11 of this letter. 
Now when you're under that sort of pressure with those four Ps coming against you, you realise your own weakness, don't you? You realise that you're as fragile as a plastic cup. I doubt Paul ever felt like an indestructible teenager. He knew he was that far away from being crushed. And yet notice what he says wonderfully in verse 8. We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. Oh, we're like plastic cups, but we're not crushed. We're hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Or as J.B. Fullett puts it, the last phrase, they can knock me down, but they cannot knock me out. Don't you love that? Why? Because Paul was a particularly strong or resilient person? No, that's not the point at all. We do think of Paul as this great super Christian hero. No, no, that's not it at all. He was able to keep going, not because he was strong, but because of God, because of his power. See, look at the Apostle Paul and you saw, verse 7, the all-surpassing power of God at work. Gaius Davis wrote a book called Genius and Grace. Maybe some of you have read it. In it, he looks at some of the great Christian witnesses of the past centuries. Uh, Luther of the 16th century, Bunyan of the 17th, William Cooper of the 18th, Lord Shaftesbury of the 19th, Amy Carmichael, C.S. Lewis and J.B. Phillips of the 20th century. Now some of those names will ring bells with you, maybe they all do. They were people who were mightily used by God. And yet these great Christians suffered from anxiety and depression and guilt and darkness and doubt. And in his book, Gaius Davis demonstrated how divine grace enabled these great men and women to cope with their weaknesses. And you see, it's as people cope that the power of the gospel is demonstrated. That's the point of verse 7, isn't it? That's the point of verses 8 and 9. It's when people are converted through the ministry of frail people that we know that it must be the power of God that has changed them. Verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. It's a million miles from the personality cult. Uh, Christian, uh, what's your weakness? Shyness? A depression? Darkness? Doubts? A broken relationship? Maybe it's a physical illness. Are you simply unable to cope with the pressure of life and work? You wake up sometimes thinking, I can't go a moment longer. I bet there's some like that here today. Listen, some of, great, some of God's greatest heroes and heroines have been neurotic and depressives. And so be encouraged. These struggles that you have do not leave you useless in the Christian life, but quite the opposite. Exactly the opposite. As you struggle, if you are a weak person, the world will leave you on the shelf. Left to die like a weak and injured animal in the wild, left to the vultures. In the world's eyes, if you are weak or even if you're ordinary, you're on the shelf. Because the world loves the personality, the powerful, able, outstanding person. But the treasure of the gospel is in jars of clay. And so the Lord loves using weak people. 
to demonstrate his all-surpassing power. Christian, be encouraged. Do you wonder where to turn to next? Then you are a prime candidate to be mightily used by God. Because of the resurrection. See, as we come to close, Paul tells us why we can possibly persevere in Christian ministry, in Christian service. It is all because of the resurrection. And two very quick points. The first one, the resurrection for the Christian is a present experience. Look at verses 10 to 12. Verse 10. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body now. Verse 11. For we who are alive are always being given over to the death of Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body now. See, the resurrection power of Jesus is meant to be a present experience. I wonder if you've experienced this. It's the the dramatic language of death and resurrection in verses 10 and 11. But the point is this. As we give ourselves in service to the Lord we will experience the power of the resurrection of Jesus to enable us to keep serving. So that as we feel these things in verse 8, being hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, he'll actually raise us up and help us to overcome. John Stott tells the story of the last night of a student mission years ago. It had been a wonderful week. And the week definitely came to a climax as hundreds turned up for the meeting. Hundreds of unbelievers wanted to hear the gospel. But he lost his voice. And all he could do was sort of croak. Barely that. Just before the meeting he asked the students to pray that God's strength would be seen through weakness. He went out into the auditorium and in his words he croaked his way through the address. He says it was pathetic. But now, years later, this was in Australia, regularly when he now goes over to to, to Australia, he comes across people who were converted at that very meeting. Not just that week, at that very meeting. And people who are now, years later, still going on with the living God. Verse 10. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Even in the midst of sickness and pain and tiredness and depression, the inward life of Jesus gives us a vitality that we could not expect otherwise. Have you experienced that? I wonder if most of us don't know that present experience of the resurrection. Because we don't know what it is to carry around in our body the death of Jesus. Because we won't allow the gospel to carry us into situations that take us well out of our comfort zone. If we would be a bit more daring for the Lord, even we, weak people, pathetic plastic cups that we think we are, if we would be prepared to go into situations that we never thought we could cope with, then we would know the life of Jesus raising us up, experiencing the power of the Lord, bringing us through those situations. That's verses 10 and 11. And when we do, look what happens in verse 12. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. That's a surprise, isn't it? 
The Corinthians experienced new life because Paul was prepared to suffer to take the gospel to them. We persevere in Christian ministry because the resurrection is a present experience and we persevere in Christian service because the resurrection is a future certainty as we close verses 13 to 15. It is written, verse 13, I believe, therefore I have spoken with that same spirit of faith. We also believe and therefore speak. See, Paul is quoting Psalm 18 and uh, Psalm 16. You may want to read it uh, when you get home. It is a psalm where the psalmist had experienced the Lord's rescuing him from death. And Paul says, just as the Lord rescued the psalmist from death, we believe that the Lord will rescue us from death on that final day through the resurrection. And so, he says, we'll speak out for Jesus even if it kills us. Verse 14, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. Here he's talking about the future resurrection as an absolute certainty. This came through my door uh, this week. It is uh, the Barnabas Aid uh, magazine, a magazine produced by the Barnabas Fund, uh, an organisation set up uh, to support the persecuted church all over the world. It tells stories of people all over the world who are suffering because they are Christian. And you know, there's even stories of Christians in this land who are suffering. There's three from the north of England. Pakistani background convert family receiving threats and attacks to their home and car. Iranian background convert has front door glass repeatedly broken. Ten-year-old son repeatedly beaten by older Muslim youths. Eventually they have to move house. And again in the north of England, two Pakistani teenage girls baptised in another part of the country for fear of local Muslim community. Persecution is happening on our doorsteps. Of course, it's happening all over the world as well. What keeps people going in Christian service when death is a very real and present danger? Paul says, verses 14 and 15, being certain of the resurrection from the dead. A rock-solid belief in the resurrection makes us bold. And others benefit from that. Verse 15, all this is for, for your benefit, says Paul to the Corinthians so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. To the glory of God. Not the glory of the individual. Not like the personality cult. That's what Paul's been saying. The personality cult is so dangerous and it is so not Christian. Christian, do you feel weak? Like a plastic cup? If you do, you're a prime candidate for doing mighty things for the Lord. Do you feel as if you don't know where to turn tomorrow morning? As you trust him, he will give you the resurrection power to keep going. And when you do that, the glory will be his. Let's pray together. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. 
Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that your ways are not man's ways. We thank you that you are pleased to use the ordinary and the weak. We thank you that when you use the ordinary and the weak, the glory is yours. And so we pray for ourselves, weak and ordinary people, that in our weakness we would find ourselves relying upon you and experiencing the resurrection as a present reality and knowing it to future certainty that we may become more and more bold and courageous in going into situations that we could never cope with ourselves but that we find you enabling us and equipping us. Lord, use us to your praise and glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.